should have received a handout that says the mission of the church and missions. Uh, my name is Dave Doran. I'm the pastor of the church here and the president of the seminary. Uh, it's funny, at lunch I was I sat down with some guys that are in from, they're just, they've never been here before. And and so I, because Ben Edwards was forgot to introduce me this morning and I didn't want to say my own introduction. So when Ben was walking down, he goes, I forgot to introduce you. Let me go back up. I said, nah. So I didn't say anything. So they were sort of like, we were trying to figure out what you do around here at lunch. And I said, welcome to the club. <laughs> there have been people trying to figure that out for a long time. So, so, so that's actually who I am. So I've, I've served here as the pastor for a little over, well, 30, it'll be 40, 31 years in February. And uh, actually came to know the Lord as an eight-year-old boy through the ministry of this church. So my whole family came to Christ through the ministry of the church. And so I grew up in the church and and then uh, came back for seminary and did my MDiv and THM here at the seminary. And so I've been thankful to serve serve here. Let me uh, have a word of prayer with us, and then uh, we'll try and dive, dive into the notes that you received, all right? Lord, thank you for the challenge that we just received from your word, and thank you for the opportunity it is to gather and, and uh, be encouraged, instructed, and exhorted, and uh, we pray that you would uh, cause all of us to bear fruit in our lives and then fruit in the ministries that you've entrusted to us. Uh, we pray for your help in this session as we try to take a look at uh, really some challenges in thinking about the mission of the church and missions and pray that you'll help me to be clear and uh, that it'll be profitable. And that result is that we'll, we'll have a deeper conviction about what the church is called to be and do. And so we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so let me give you sort of like the, like the big overview. Uh, the, the, the choice of the termination terminology in the title is uh, to actually try to argue that those two are joined together, the mission of the church and missions. Uh, I, I explained at the beginning of my session this morning that... Um, that the theme missionary church is intended to to actually bring those through things in line with each other, right? So when you ask, what is the church supposed to be doing? And you ask, what is mission supposed to be about? You shouldn't come up with two different answers, right? Same answer, perhaps we could say different application because of the context, but not, uh, not different, and, and, and the danger and the reason why I think this is important to have is because what you've got happening, I think, is erosion on both ends. The redefinition of missions, right, is, has uh, been an ongoing battle, and some of that is tied to a redefinition of the mission of the church. And, it, and I think you could have genuine chicken-egg kinds of debates as to which one came first. Uh, I personally tend to be um, thinking that in some ways the, the way the wedge gets driven in is actually from the mission side, right? And, I, and I, I'd say a parallel like this. Um, the, the homogenous unit principle developed on the mission field, Donald McGavran, church growth, that the gospel spreads best when it doesn't cross barriers of language, culture, caste, because he was in India. So establish a church planting strategy that, that focuses on a homogenous unit. That way you can target it in, right? He was writing as a missionary in missiology, wrote all those works about church growth, they then took fire in the American context with things like Willow Creek and Saddleback because they said, you know what, this homogenous unit principle is right. So it became not, it actually became not legitimate missiology to some degree if you're thinking about genuine cultural and ethnic linguistic barriers, right? It went from missiology to basically market demographics. We need to hit unchurched Harry and Mary. So they wrote up their profile, or Saddleback Sam. They wrote up their profile and said, this is the target that we're going after, 
and will be most effective if we can actually identify a clear target like this. And they always made appeals to the writing of missiologists. Right? And I would suggest to you the fact that we've left the gate so wide open on the mission field is why you have so many churches now in the United States saying, hey, we've always done this stuff on the mission field, and it's not been a problem. So the church should be doing that here, too. Right? So it actually has, in a sense, sort of worked backward so that the mission of the church is sometimes being redefined based on things that have been permitted on the mission field, if I'd put it that way. And so I think we've got a problem on both ends that we have to, we have to wrestle through with it. And I think uh, if I were going to just try and make the quick case for why it's important, I think because we're, we are subject to the influence of the writings, ministries, and movements of our day. I mean, it's just, Riyadh, I was saying this the other day in a, a seminary class, I think it's, it's sort of like a, like a football game, right? The, the, uh, the opponent, theological system, uh, moves the ball down the field, comes into our half of the field, makes progress. People wake up to it. The defense takes a stand, stops them, say, at our 20-yard line, punts the ball, but they get the ball back on the 40, <laughs> right? They're not all the way back to where they started. They've actually, they've actually gained a bunch of ground, and they just start doing it incrementally so that pretty soon we're, just, we're, all, we're actually sort of assuming to be true things that were initially considered avant-garde, right? Because it just sort of seeps into the language of things, and, and I think that happens in, even in terms of the mission of the church. And, and so I think we have to constantly reevaluate, not by, uh, you know, not by necessarily where the, if I could put it this way, sort of the status of the football game is, but actually where it ought to be, right? Should that opposing view have gained any yardage? Not, hey, we're successful because we took back 20 yards, Right? We actually net lost 20, and, 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 and that's the problem. We push them back 20 yards, and we think we won, but we actually have given up ground game to them, and so I think we have to be, we have to be aware of it. I think, uh, honestly, there's less debate about this than there actually ought to be because I think the contemporary church is beginning to assume things uh, that, that it, we shouldn't be assuming. We should actually have to verify them, and and make certain that we do that. And, and so I, I mean, I, this could sound the wrong way, but uh, I mean, I think probably for like 25 years I've been beating this drum. <laughs> I just keep finding different ways to get my drumstick out and hit the drum, all right? So, and, it, and it's because uh, I think maybe 25, I mean, the first time I remember it, I, I was doing it actually at a, uh, a leading of the administrators. It was the American Association of Christian Colleges and Seminaries in the mid-90s, and I was really sort of pushing back, and at that point it was about people sort of letting the religious right co-opt the purpose of the church. And, and, and I was like the lone wolf voice in the room and actually got you know really some, some long-term flack about it because I was saying the purpose of the church isn't to do that, right? And so now it's actually from the left that the big push is coming, right? Push towards social justice. And, and I would say, I'm saying the exact same thing I was saying when it was saying we should be doing all the political push, right? That, that the, the purpose of the church isn't to Christianize America, the purpose of the church isn't to transform society, right? It's the same message, it's just the, the people trying to advance the ball have changed a little bit. And, and I think that's the tension for us. It's always swirling, and, and we've got we've to be careful about it. And the new thing tends to catch people's attention, and, and so it advances the ball. Uh, and I think the implications of this are enormous for God's work, right? It, it really is significant shift in uh, the purpose of the church 
that we have recorded for us in Scripture and that extending out from a local church to the ends of the earth, if, you know, even, even minor trajectory changes can end up in a long way offline, right? So, you know, your, your aim might be just fractionally off, but that bullet's going to fly way past the deer. <laughs> because by the time it gets to the deer, the trajectory has taken it in a, in a lot of different ways, right? And, and so any kind of these trajectory shifts that happen for the church end up having long-term significant ramifications. And, and I think that's why we have to constantly be coming to, to realign things and, and think about them in that way. And I, and I think, and I actually was trying to poke around to find, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like a like a huge technology guy and all that stuff, so I'm semi-Luddite, really. But the, the reality of it is um, I was trying to track down online some information. So this is a little bit old, right, because I don't have the newest stuff, right? But um, there was a study not that long ago, not too many years ago, that basically if you just took Word, right, for Great Commission stuff, Word ministry versus deed-oriented ministry, the funding in the study that I saw was 31% for word, 69% for deed, right? So things that were going toward mercy ministries, relief, all that kind of stuff. 69% of money being described as missions was actually going for that. 31% for it. Now, my guess is that that's coming from a, a you know, a, those statistics are coming from an orbit that would probably be left of where we are, right? In that more conservative groups wouldn't be quite that. But I'm not, I mean, I, I, I am surprised, but not like shock surprised when I see reports from groups that still claim to be pretty conservative. And if you look at their pie chart, the amount of the pie that's tied to preaching and church planting is getting smaller and smaller. And the parts of it that have to do with those other things are getting larger and larger. Right? And that's what I'm saying is that's the shift. It used to be that there was generally uniform agreement that missions was the preaching of the gospel for the making of disciples to establish churches. But, but there's actually a much broader defini definition of missions now, right? And, 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 that, and I don't think, right, I don't think that that's looking like it's going to change, right? The trend line is farther and farther into that rather than peeling back from that, all right? So... So I think we need to think about it. So what I, here's what I intend to do, is, is really actually sort of do a historical survey, like a you know, 35,000 foot flyover of, of this issue throughout the 20th century up to where we are, because this is not a new issue, this is an old issue. And we've been through this cycle, I would argue three times, and I'm using three with a little bit broad, because I almost added a fourth one in the current state of things, but I think the current one we're facing is actually just the, the latter portion of the third movement of it. And, and, and I think it's important for us to understand the background of it so that we could be informed, right, and, and, and therefore evaluate things based on the scriptures, which is then what we'll step in to do. So I put... You basically, the note, I mean, so my objective is to show how this, this has been an issue for over 100 years. And, and in some ways, I'm, I'm using my football analogy to show you, right? The ball was run down the field. It got pushed back. They didn't quit. They just reloaded, started running the ball back down the field, pushed back, ran the ball back down the field again, all right? And, and each time, I would argue, we've lost ground. Right? We've lost ground almost to the point where it's quite possible that the position I'm going to be advocating seems like it's the heretical and new position rather than the old position, <laughs> right? Because it's just sort of like a, I mean, you can't really mean that. And, and I would say that's evidence that we've lost all the ground that we've lost, all right? 
So the first round of infiltration I put there from Edinburgh to the ecumenical movement. The reason I picked it, Edinburgh in 1910 was, was simultaneously the peak, right, of the student volunteer movement and, and, and therefore it was the place where it reached its heights and it began to slope downward. That's what the peak did for it. Um, student volunteer movement started in the late 1800s. You're probably familiar with some of it. And in, 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 uh, like many movements, it, it ended up being a mixed bag. Lots of good, right? Raised up a, a lot of workers for the harvest. The sort of mantra of it was to fulfill the Great Commission in this generation. Uh, started with some students who were engaged in it. Some sort of formally picked up its energy connected to Moody and the Northfield conferences, began to really be pushed and started to just generate lots of interest in missions and, and call people to that. When it became formalized and organized, it began to shift its focus, right? 1910 was the Edinburgh Conference. That's why in 2010, there were some big commemorative 100-year deals. There was actually one in Edinburgh, but the big one, Luzon Movement, was down in Cape Town, South Africa, 2010. That was because it's the 100-year, you know, the centennial of this missions movement and, and focused on it. What happened, though, is they began to shift in terms of the focus of it, all right? And I put a representative quote in your notes. I have some other ones, but uh, this is from a book called The Battle for World Evangelism, which was just like side footnote, was written by a missions prof at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. All right, so I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a historic fundamentalist, right? Trinity has never actually been identified with historic fundamentalism. It's always been sort of mainstream new evangelicalism, right? That's, that's what the banner they would carry. When Fuller started to go over the ditch, the guys that were evangelical there left, came to Trinity, right? It was intended to be a new evangelical it's old Swedish general conference school, right? But that's, that's where it was. So this is not coming from, from some flame-throwing fundamentalist, right? David Hesselgrave, Johnston, these guys were saying the face of missions is changing, and it's changing in a different way. So the battle for world evangelism was written to track this, and I'm basically following his argument. Here's what he says, witness to the gospel. This is what they were saying. Right, the New Delhi report, witness to the gospel, therefore, must be prepared to engage in the struggle for social justice and peace. It will have to take the form of humble service and a practical ministry of reconciliation amidst the actual conflicts of our times. The wholeness of the gospel demands a corporate expression since it concerns every aspect of men's lives, healing, the relief of distress, the attack upon the social abuses and reconciliation, as well as preaching, Christian fellowship, worship are all bound together in the message that is proclaimed. All right, so that's, that's where it led to, from Edinburgh to the World Congress, the, the basically World Council of Churches. But the reason it went there, right, was because at 1910, it turned in this direction. All right, Johnston says this, it was the culmination and began the collapse of the student volunteer movement. What had begun as a clear gospel-driven movement to reach the world for Christ began the slow but steady march toward the ecumenism of the World Council of Churches. Two main reasons. One, a deliberate decision to minimize doctrinal issues for the sake of greater unity. And two, a growing sympathy for the social gospel emphasis of that era. All right, so already in 1910, the student volunteer movement for missions began to become more sympathetic to the social gospel and, and cares about those kinds of things. So they started talking about, and they used this language, the larger mission, right? So, so it wasn't that they say, hey, we need to stop preaching the gospel and stop planting churches. No, we need to take into consideration the larger mission. That is, it's not get rid of those things. It's, well, we need to add these other things that need to be done to it. Right? We've been too narrow and too restricted in it. All right? and, and so what happened is that that began to incorporate it. Right? Edinburgh 1910 hoped to harness the global forces of Christianity to complete world evangelism to introduce the coming kingdom of God upon the earth. 
It served rather to hinder evangelism by what it did not say concerning the authority of Scripture and what it did through the agencies which grew out of it. Right, and this was early 1900s. And, and it, uh, 1910, obviously, is pre-World War I, pre-World War II. There was still all this optimism about the evolutionary improvement of man's condition. And so they saw Christianity as being the answer to that. If we can introduce Christian principles into the cultures of the world, we can actually usher in the kingdom. We can, we can bring things to where they ought to be. And so the larger mission began to be. Now, since it was on the downward slide and it kept expanding its tent, it became the World Council of Churches, which is really sort of, I mean, it's mind-boggling. If you know the history of the student volunteer movement, Right? And all that we look at as so great about that, it actually degenerated into the World Council of Churches, which is basically a pluralistic group of people that doesn't see any need to evangelize anybody at that point. Right? So the pushback against that came from evangelicalism in the middle of the 20th century. And that then leads to the second round of it. All right? so, and the way that this worked, and I think it's important to understand, is that the, uh, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, if I could say it this way, evangelicals were much more fundamentalist than they would always let on, right? Even by 1976, the battle for the Bible, Harold Lenzel says the fundamentalists were right on the theology. And, and the reason he was criticizing what new evangelicalism becomes is because it abandoned the theology. It gave up inspiration and inerrancy, right? So, so they were orthodox in their belief system, but they had adopted a stance of accommodation and infiltration, which, which was, ended up what getting, got teased out in the second layer of it, right? So the first thing the, that the evangelicals did was push back against the World Council of Churches. And a part of how he did that, I read that statement from 1961. In 1968, they had the Berlin Congress on Evangelism. Right, Billy Graham hosted it. At the end of that conference, they essentially affirmed that the mission of the church is the preaching of the gospel for the establishing of churches. Right? They basically said the World Council of Churches is wrong. We're not supposed to do the larger mission. Right? We're supposed to stay focused on this. Between 1968 and 1974, there was uh, warfare among evangelicals. Right? There was a few different other councils, and there was a huge amount of pushback against what 1968 had decided. 1974, at Luzon, John Stott sort of steps up to the lead, and, and you know what he introduces? Holistic mission. Not the larger mission, but we need to have a holistic mission that incorporates both word and deed in a way that takes genuine interest in the social issue side of the equation. And in fact, just uh, whenever it was Graham died a year and a half or two years ago, uh, it was sort of interesting because the Gospel Coalition ran an article that in which, I mean, basically what they did was they, they pulled it back up again. It was a little bit earlier article, if I recall, in which they focused on 1974 as a conflict between Stott and Graham over this issue. And they were highlighting the fact that John Stott stood up to Billy Graham to sort of push back Graham's narrow and restricted vision on this issue. So the Gospel Coalition was highlighting that what John Stott had, had, had advanced. And that they were, what they were doing was tacitly acknowledging the shift that happened from the mission of the church's missions to the mission of the church is what we traditionally called missions plus social engagement and transformation. And so 74 became a watershed year in which it began to subtly come back now to just like 1910 and gradually infiltrated all of the movement. Now it started to infiltrate evangelicalism. And that's why the battle for world evangelism was written to try and push back against what was being said there. Two representative quotes from John Stott. For if the Christian mission is to be modeled on Christ's mission, it will surely involve for us, as it did for him, in entering into other people's worlds. Incarnational mission, whether evangelistic or social or both. You see that? 
mission, whether evangelistic or social, or both. So all of a sudden you have mission that could be social, right? Not the gospel has social ramifications, the gospel has social implications, but the mission could be social, right? Some, some aspect of social uh, transformation connected it. He, he says in Contemporary Christian, he says, nor do I fee, feel able to withdraw the conviction that our mission is to be modeled on Christ, just as his love for us is like the Father's love for him, so his sending us into the world is like the Father's sending him into the world. If words and works went together in his ministry, they should also in ours. So, and I'm going to come back to this, but basically Stott was sort of the theologian of this change. Right? There are many of them, but he's the guy that championed the language of Lausanne and, and began to write and push it in many ways, and then others were stepping up to it. A man named Edward Dayton, who was a missions leader, uh, he, he, I'll use his assessment, right, because he doesn't agree with me. He actually thinks this was a good thing. I think it was a bad thing. Right? But, but listen to what he says. In the eight years between Berlin and Lausanne, there was a tremendous movement in the evangelical part of Christ's church. Lausanne was intended to be a congress of those involved in trying to reach the world. But the Holy Spirit was also enlivening the minds of men and women to expand our understanding of what it meant to evangelize. The Lausanne covenant greatly broadened our worldviews. We were called to see that the task of evangelism was not to be confined to the sharing of information about Jesus. There was a life to be lived. We saw the need for the broad redemption of the world in all its aspects. The year of Lausanne, of Lausanne 1974, might also be described as a watershed year in Western evangelicals' interest in social concerns. And that's a book that he wrote in, I think, 1982 or 83, uh, and, and the article is called Social Transformation, the Mission of God in the Church and Human Response. And then he says again in the same, same book, And what is social transformation for the Christian? Is it not the entire business that God is about, namely the redemption of the world? And is not the mission of the church social transformation in every dimension? All right, now go back to what I said. Luzon was a discussion of missions. But it was becoming a redefinition of the mission of the church. So the conversation about what, what are we doing on the mission field and what's, what's the mission then starts to step back into people thinking about what the church's mission is. All right, listen, David Hesselgrave was, uh, uh, I mean, is, is really one of the premier missiologists in, in evangelicalism. Uh, he actually... Uh, along with Johnston, who wrote Battle for the World Evangelism, was actually pushing back against this, right? And so, so here's, what, here's what he wrote in, a, in an article called Changing of the Guards. As a result, it seems to me that North American evangelical missiology can now be divided into basically two, not three or four or five, but primarily two main streams or groups. One group thinks of Christian mission as being a broad enterprise encompassing all those good things that the church and its missions are doing or should be doing in the world. The other group still holds to the more narrow and traditional view that the Christian mission basically has to do with world evangelization, with proclaiming the gospel and planting New Testament churches. Other ministries may indeed be both Christian and important, but they are secondary or supporting and not the heart of Christian mission. All right, so that's, I mean, Hesselgrave's going, folks, this is what's happening. <laughs> like it's fragmented the view of what missiology is into a holistic version and then one that is still focusing on proclamation for the making of disciples and establishing of churches. Uh, Donald McGavern, the world church growth guy, he wrote an article called Missions Faces a Lion. And, and in this book, he reconstructs the history of it through the 20th century and actually develops into the same two kinds of streams with two different understandings of mission. Here's what he says. The first group of missionaries held that mission is discipling men and women and a segment of society in segment of society after segment of society, people after people, caste after caste. 
The second group of Christians held that mission is helping men and women of all religions and all segments of society to live better lives. Mission is famine relief. Mission is development of communities. Mission is doing good works by medicine, education, architecture, and the like, agriculture, and the like. The difference between these two understandings of the missionary task was clear. The first held that justice and racial equality are excellent goals desired by God, and that the best way to get them is to lead large numbers of people in every nation to become practicing Christians filled with the Holy Spirit and directed by the Bible. The second held that mission is helping men and women of every religion, particularly Christians, to act more justly in their daily lives and be more brotherly to the Africans, Asians, Europeans, and Americans in the midst of them. In short, is mission primarily evangelism, or is it primarily all efforts to improve human existence? Now, that may seem like an oversimplification, but I actually don't think it is. Right? And what McGavern is looking at is he was historically looking at the different approaches of missions between those who actually were Bible-believing evangelical people and the missions of the ecumenical movement. Right? Because his age, he was that mid-20th century kind of a thing. Right? But effectively what's happened is because this side was arguing for the larger mission, the minute evangelicalism started to embrace the holistic mission, it actually started to pursue the same kinds of things. Right? I will come back to this. But let's say here in Detroit, if our mission is to transform Detroit for the kingdom of God, redeem it, redeem the city, extend the kingdom, advance the kingdom, right? We're, we are actually going to end up talking about changing the society for people who actually have no relationship to the king. Right? So our church adopts a public school and moves in to try and help it because we're advancing the kingdom. But, but if those people don't believe in Jesus, they're not in the kingdom. We didn't advance the kingdom. It didn't take over any new territory. Right? That's just the, it's, a, it's a category that sounds great, but it's actually not a biblically conceived category because unbelievers actually don't come into some relationship to the kingdom just because we pursued social transformation. That's not how someone is related to the kingdom according to the scriptures. Right? So, so what it does is sort of blur things so that now humanitarian effort is actually service to the mission of God to establish his kingdom or advance his kingdom. And, and that's, that's, I think... The trajectory line, right, is going to start to go the same way. And so that then, if I could go to the third round of infiltration, and we're, we're still in it a little bit. And here's what I'd say is um, when I first started beating this drum, okay, the missional movement had one name connected to it as well, the emergent church, right? And they were using all of this same language. Right? And, and what, what happened was the emergent church actually fizzled out fast because it essentially adopted all kinds of, of false teaching. Right? And, and so you had groups that were all sort of moving to what the emerging church should be like. And again, if I could cycle back to why I say sometimes it goes for missions. So if you read people who were promoting the emerging church or the missional church stuff, Almost, without exception, you'll trace them back to a guy named Leslie Newbigin, right, who is a missions writer who had served in foreign context, came back to Great Britain, and realized Great Britain was now a mission field. And so he started writing about what does the church need to do to recognize that it's in the mission field and started talking about all those things in, in terms of missiology and, and basically talking about how does the church thrive in post-Christendom, right? And, and so, so basically all the, the, you know, the people who started drinking from that well started going, we need to get rid of the old Christendom, the old church. We need to, we need to shift gears to the emerging church. How is the church going to be effective now in our present context? How are we going to do that? And, and a part of that became we need to become more missional, 
right? More targeted on mission. But when they said that, they weren't saying, they weren't using missional like purposeful, right? They weren't using missional like as in missions minded. <laughs> they were actually tapping into this holistic mission, larger mission, missio day kind of concept, right? And, and we need to be lined up with God's mission. Therefore, we need to be missional. The church is sent into the world to transform it. So lots of emphasis about not the church gathered, but the, the church in the community. How does your church serve the community? The church is supposed to serve the world, right? All that kind of language being used. Look at the one quote here uh, by one of the guys who sort of was on the front edge of it and still is to some degree. A proper understanding of missional begins with rediscovering the mission, uh, missionary understanding of God by his very nature. God is a sent one who takes the initiative to redeem his creation. This doctrine known as Missio Dei, the sending of God, is causing uh, many to redefine their understanding of the church because we are the sent people of God. The church is the instrument of God's mission in the world. As things stand, many people see it the other way around. They believe mission is an instrument of the church, a means by which the church has grown. Although we frequently say the church has a mission, according to missional theology, more correct statement would be the mission has a church. Okay, so God is doing things in the world. The church is, is to adopt his mission to carry those out. All right, and, and in some senses... We'd agree, probably, but the problem is, and, and we'll, we'll step into this in a minute, is, is the conflating of all things that God is doing with what the church has been commanded to do, right? Is it, it's possible that God is doing things in the world which the church has not been commissioned to do. So the mission of God, if you're going to use those kinds of language, is bigger and broader than what the mission of the church is. And, and, and I think anyone should recognize that because God, the only institution, the church is not the only institution that God has brought into existence, right? He's brought in families. He's brought in the government. They all have distinct purposes. And, and so the question isn't, you know, does God have a mission? The question is, what is the mission that God has given to the church to do, right? And, and so we should, be, we should be thinking about it that way. And I would actually even uh, incline to argue Right, that this is, this is uh, this latest round of uh, social justice debate. Um, I think some of the reason why it's so hardcore, <laughs> right, is because the for now for thirty, forty, five years, right, the theology of Lausanne has been the dominant theology being taught to evangelicals, right? The church does have a holistic mission. We are supposed to be doing these things. And, and so now you get people who actually are stepping it out into practice, right? And, and, and it's, they're stepping out in a way that's different than the old way. And you have essentially a generational conflict happening, right? People who would say, and that's why and I, I'm sympathetic only in this sense, right? Uh, I just actually read it. I was reading Woke Church by Eric Mason, and, and Mason was saying, you know, someone starts to say the church needs to, uh, you know, go after racial injustice, and people get all mad about it. I never heard them get mad about it when they said the church needs to go after abortion. Right? And, and in one sense, he's, he's, he's right. I mean, lots of, lots of churches that would pass along petitions, rally people to, you know, uh, picket abortion clinics, stand in right-to-life chains, start crisis pregnancy centers. They didn't see any problem with going after that moral evil. But you do the same thing about racial inequality or injustice, and all of a sudden you're a socialist Marxist. Right now, here's where... I feel comfortable because I just said, you shouldn't have been doing that. The mission of the church isn't to stamp out abortion. Right? So, so if you're not doing that, you can't be criticized when you don't do that either because neither of them is the mission of the church. 
right? That's now individual believers might want to do something to exercise their rights and privileges as citizens and all that. But the church of Jesus Christ was not given the mission to do those, right? But, but because for 45 years, the religious right was effectively saying, <laughs> the church must do this. We must change the culture. We must change the society. We need to influence the society. They essentially are arguing now about which way you want to influence it, not whether or not you're supposed to. And, and, and that's, that's, I think, the reality of it. Uh, effectively, so, you have this massive shift. Uh, again, just a couple quotes from a guy named Christopher Wright, writing the book, The Mission of God, just so you can see a part of what they're pushing. Uh, he says, again, it's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. The church was made for mission, God's mission. So, that leads him to the conclusion... So when I speak of mission, I'm thinking of all that God is doing in his great purpose for the whole creation and all that he calls us to do in cooperation with that purpose. But when I speak of missions, I'm thinking of the multitude of activities that God's people can engage in by, which, by means of which they participate in God's mission. And it seems to me that there are as many kinds of missions as there are kinds of sciences, probably more in fact. And in the same way, in the variety of missions God has entrusted to his church as a whole, it is unseemly for one kind of mission to dismiss another out of a superiority complex or to undervalue itself as not real mission out of an inferiority complex. So let me step back here. So like science, you got earth science, chem science, all that kind of stuff. It's all science. So the mission is this large thing, there are specific kinds of missions, they all fit under it, you shouldn't actually be comparing them to each other. So, the mission to evangelize and establish churches is a part of God's larger mission, but so is the redemption of the creation. So, someone who's advancing environmental concerns, or the introducing of a righteous and just society is a part of God's mission. So the person who's working to stop human trafficking, they're involved in missions, right? He's, he's turning it all into missions because of the larger mission, right? The, the mission of God. Larger mission, holistic mission, missio dei, right? All of them are basically ways in which you can, you can sort of broaden out what the church is called to do in this world. And, and eventually, uh, I think it's one. I mean, so I, I mentioned Edinburgh 1910. At Cape Town 2010, the, uh, the Luzon movement, right, it actually ended up arguing that we never should have made a distinction between uh, witness and works, between gospel and social action, because they're all a part of the mission, and whatever you're doing, you, you need to do it as a matter of carrying out the mission of God, right? So, so and, and just so you're clear, I mean, that Luzon movement, that's not like radical evangelicalism, right? That's fairly mainstream evangelical. I mean, guys like Piper were speakers for it, right? And, and that's why I'm not trying to make it a, you know, I mean, obviously, it's easy to take drive-by stop. But, but when Piper was the pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, they had a missionary of creation care that was serving in East Africa, whose work was to teach the East Africans better stewardship of the, of the land and ability to grow crops and all that. So he's a missionary of creation care. All right, so, so here's the guy, the guy who wrote, Let the Nations Be Glad. <laughs> Clearly thinks, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, but fully still captured by the holistic mission in, in that regard. So listen to what Cape Town 2010 talks about it, right? The work of the gospel then in all of its dimensions, including evangelism, disciple-making, peacemaking, social engagement, ethical transformation, bearing witness to the truth, caring for creation, overcoming evil powers, suffering and enduring under persecution, etc., is pointless and fruitless without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And 
I know this could sound snarky, right? But all those things are viewed as missions. And I, I mean, I read that list and I go, how do you do creation care in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit? Right? I mean, is that what we were given, Acts 1 8? We're given the Holy Spirit so that you can, you can go do creation care, beginning at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. No, it was the power and presence of the Spirit was for the witness to the resurrection of Christ. Right? And that's, that's a verbal witness, Romans 10 says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Nobody seeing you care for creation hears the gospel. Right? It, it doesn't, doesn't work like that. They have to hear the message of Jesus Christ. And, and there's been a massive shift. I mean, you know, it's sort of a fundamental evangelical mission. I saw a video not that long ago in which they were talking about a partnership with another group trying to help refugees. And, and I, know the guy, I know what the guy's intention is, right? But they, they had a hospital, and he says they're hearing the gospel, they're seeing the gospel, they're feeling the gospel. Okay, and we've talked like this so much that it sounds cool. But you know what? A doctor performing medicine, no one is seeing the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, according to the scriptures. It's not the dispensing of medicine. They're not feeling the gospel. Right? They, they may be seeing the, the transformation the gospel has had on Christians who would pour themselves out on behalf of Muslims who are being persecuted by Hindus, right? but they're not seeing the gospel. They're not actually feeling the gospel. And, and yet that sometimes becomes the way in which all of this stuff is justified is, well, we need to preach the gospel through words and works, right? And... and you know, and it, it, and it introduces this kind of a shift in things. Um, if you have your Bible, if you look at John 17, because I want to do now just a real quick, um, I mean, ideally quick, biblical evaluation, biblical theological evaluation. Because I think here's one of the, the I mean, the, uh, these are in descending order of importance. The first one, I think, is the incarnation or proclamation issue. And, and, and this is actually where, um, you know, that one, I, the first time I actually did a presentation about this in a context, this, is, this was actually sort of the, the nub of the attack. And, and, um, and it's simply this, is that what John Stott did to try and change the nature of this discussion was effectively change our conception of missions from proclamation to incarnation. Right? And he said that in his quote. Right? So, so what, he, what he argues is that we shouldn't view the mission of the church primarily in terms of word. We should view it in terms of word and life and work. Right? And, and the way he did that was trying to lock into John 17, 18, and 20, 21. So 17, 18, Jesus is praying, says, As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And that's the party. So when I consider Christ's mission, I think that we have to have an incarnational mission like he had, and he's working at it from that same. 2021 comes along and says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. All right? And, and so how, basically Stott's argument goes like this. Uh, the Father sent the Son. The Son sends us. How did the Son come? He came by means of incarnation. That is, he entered into other people's lives and worlds and took took all that upon himself so that he could minister to him. And if we're going to fulfill the mission, we need to enter into other people's worlds in, in the same model. Okay? Uh, the bigger issue here, and, and I, 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 I'm going to open the can of worms and, and just try and slam the lid back on it real fast, right? But, but the issue is, if we're going to think about who's the model missionary, is it Jesus or is it Paul? Right? Because that's coming up again by the red-letter Christians, Let's go back to the Gospels. Let's see what Jesus said. See how Jesus did. And, and all pushing. And they're saying Jesus is the template for us for missions and, and not actually the Apostle Paul. And that's basically the tack that, that Stott is taking, right? 
which means you're looking at, at, instead of looking at how the church obeyed Jesus in the, in the book of Acts and the epistles, you're going back into the gospels and, and prioritizing them in, in terms of that. And I think there's some, I think significant hermeneutical issues of that. The, the, uh, the, the easiest of which to say is we have commission text in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. And a basic hermeneutical principle is you use the clear text to interpret the obscure ones, not the obscure text to interpret the clear ones. Right? So Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is really pretty clear about what we're supposed to do. Mark 16, 15, Luke 24, it talks about preaching for repentance of sin in my name, beginning at Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Acts 1, 8, go and be my witnesses. Here come these two verses. As the Father sent me, so send I you. Right? As, as, as you sent me, so send I them. And all of a sudden, those become the dominant way in which the rest of the commission texts are interpreted. Right? They, they basically... They basically get shaped into this text. And, and I think that's a hermeneutical mistake, but it's also actually a mishandling of the very text. Right? Because even the way I said it, I was, I was sort of hesitating because I'm, I was telling you his argument, but I think it sounds so plausible if you don't follow it. Right? But think about this. As the Father sent me, so send I you. So, as Jesus came... That's how we're supposed to go. The whole thing shifted. It was Father sent me. I'm sending you. And all of a sudden it becomes a conversation about how Jesus came. Rather than how Jesus was sent. Right? The emphasis of John 17, 18 and 20, 21 is on the sending. Not the as and the so. Right. And, and in fact, if you look through the whole gospel of John, you'll find that clearly say, right. I, John four, you guys are familiar with the Samaritan woman. The, she goes back in the city. Disciples show up, say, you want something to eat? He says, I have food to eat that you do not know. And what does he say his food is? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to do his work. Right? I mean, you, the sending terminology is all through the Gospel of John. When you get to John 17, it's clear that I was sent for this purpose. I was sent. I was sent. I was sent. Right? And if you don't, if you don't buy my short argument, there's this decent little New Testament scholar called Andreas Kostenberg, who did his PhD dissertation on the mission of Jesus and the mission of disciples in the Gospel of John, looking out the sending part. And he just absolutely destroys Stott. I mean, he, 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 he walks through all of the text and all of the background of it and then says, this interpretation of holistic mission, incarnational ministry, is not grounded in these texts. Right? It's not about how Jesus came. It was about Jesus being under the authority of his father. The father sent me. You are now under my authority. I'm sending you. He commissioned me. I'm commissioning you. It actually doesn't say in those two texts, it doesn't say actually anything about what we're commissioned to do. The answer for that would come in the context around it. And, and, and look at how John answers it. Look at verses six through eight. I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you've given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and, and they believed that you sent me. Down in verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world is hated them, because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. So what did Jesus come to do? He was sent to reveal the Father through the proclamation of the Father's word. Right? He says, I manifested your name. I gave them your words. I gave you your word. They kept it. I gave them your word. So then he says, as you send me, I'm sending them. Look at verse 20. 
I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who will believe on me through their word. So what did Jesus commission us to do? Is to take the word of God to people to tell them who the son is and how they can be reconciled to the father. Right? That's why in this farewell discourse in chapter 15, it says, you will testify of me. Right? When he says the, in John, and it's a, it's a complex passage, right? But he says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. He breathes on them the Spirit, and then says, whatever you forgive is forgiven. Right? So he immediately starts to talk about redemption, salvation, forgiveness of sins connected to their commission. Nothing in here indicates that Jesus is saying, so I'm sending them to do the very things that I was doing. Right? And that leads me to the misunderstanding of Christ's ministry, right? What was the incarnation? It was the miraculous, the miraculous work of God for the eternal Son of God to take to himself human nature, right? The Son existed from all eternity as an immaterial person. For him to provide redemption, he had to take to him human nature. That's Hebrews 2 says, right? It, It was necessary for him to be made like us so that through death he could destroy the power of him that held death, right? So it was necessary for someone who didn't have a body to take a body. I mean, newsflash for all of us, you have never existed in a non-incarnate way, right? You, You are human and only human and have always been incarnate. For you to have an incarnational ministry is taking an actual real miracle and turning it into a metaphor of some sort, right? And the purpose of it was for the purpose of death to provide redemption, right? That's, that's why he came to die. He had t- taken to himself human nature because actually God can't die. He's self-existent. The only way Death could happen to atone for sin would be as if the God, the Son of God, became the God-man so that his humanity could die, right? And so, so it, it, it actually sort of trivializes the incarnation by just making it a metaphor for cross-cultural missions. And in fact, if you think about it, I, mean, I just read this in my Bible reading, Jesus saying to the poor lady who's begging for her daughter to be healed, and Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It doesn't sound like very cross-cultural missions, right? You realize Jesus didn't learn a second language to cross the culture? Right? He was born a Jew, raised from birth learning the language of his family. We certainly don't want to say the Son of God had to learn a language. In his deity, he knows every language there could ever be, right? We're only talking about his humanity learning languages. He was growing in wisdom and stature, and he grew up an Israelite in the culture of Israel, learning all the customs of Israel, the language of Israel. He didn't move across some Gentile barrier and do it, right? That's, it's just, it's, it's, it's pious sort of devotionalism to try and make the incarnation the model for cross-cultural missions, like he left the culture of heaven and came to the culture of earth, and we need to leave America and go to whatever, you know. It might have some second, third, fourth level application, but that's not what the incarnation was about, okay? And the miracles get trivialized practically, right? Uh, Jesus' miracles were for attesting to his messiahship. Remember John the Baptist is in prison and he's beginning to seem like doubt and he sends one of his his disciples to say, are you the one we're looking for or are we looking for someone else? And Jesus says, go and tell him, lame are healed, blind see, dead are raised, right? This, This is the messianic power that I have. And blessed is the person who doesn't stumble over me, right? He did these things to testify to his messiahship. That's why when they would, you don't believe my words, believe the works. So let me ask you this, all right? Jesus feeds 5,000. We open a soup kitchen. Let's seem a little uneven, 
right? Jesus heals people who couldn't see from birth, couldn't speak from birth, couldn't walk from birth. We give out some medicine. Right? Those are not equal. In fact, you know who's out there digging wells and opening food kitchens and giving out malaria nets right alongside of us? Oh, there's the you know United Nations people. Is it a testimony to Jesus? I mean, if we're doing the same thing that good-hearted unbelievers who may even reject our theology are doing, how is that a testimony to the gospel? I mean, how how does that authenticate our message? The only thing that we see in the New Testament that authenticated the message was actual miracles. If you're a non-cessationist, you shouldn't be satisfied with soup kitchens and malaria nets. If you're a sensationist, you shouldn't be arguing for miracle light. Right? You should be saying, no, God wants us to preach the word and the spirit will bring conviction. That's the thing that converts sinners. Now, should we care about malaria? Should we care about human trafficking? Should we care about all those things? Well, if you're human and care about things that are actually right and wrong, you will. But that's different than saying it's the mission of the church. It's different than saying the church was called into existence to do that. All right, two other things I've got to stop with, all right? So I'll do maybe a minute on each. Uh, the mission, mission of God or the Great Commission. And, and I already sort of hinted at this. I think the problem, right, is, is if there is a missio day, and I think we could probably use that language, but what we'd have to ask are see two problems. One is confusing what God is doing with what the church is doing. Romans 8 says clearly God is going to redeem the creation. His mission is the final consummation of all things, new heavens and new earth. I don't think you can find a text of Scripture that says that the church is the instrument by which he will do that. Right? God's going to do that, but he's not going to do it through the church. We are actually going to benefit from God doing that. We'll receive our new bodies, right? We're groaning with the creation. We're groaning in hope that God's going to do that. No present expectation that actually we can accomplish that. That we can, pardon? No Green New Deal. Right, no Green New Deal is going to cut it, right? So, so it's not the mission of the church to do all that God's going to do. I mean, depending on, I mean, it's clear that God's going to be glorified in the judgment of sinners, Revelation 19. I mean, when his judgment's poured out, it's going to end in a hallelujah. A part of God's mission ultimately is going to be judged sinners. I don't think we see that as a part of the church's mission. That we're called by God to the mission of God, and God's going to judge sinners too, so we, we're, we've got the church execution squad. Right? I mean, we, we don't have that. And, and in fact, not all that every individual Christian is supposed to do becomes the mission of the church. Right? I'm supposed to love my wife like Christ loved the church. The church isn't supposed to love my wife like Christ loves the church. Right? I was responsible when they were in my home to bring up my children in the discipline instruction of the Lord. The church wasn't commanded to bring up my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Right? There, there's spheres of responsibility. Government has one. Church has some, individuals have some. They may seem like at times they overlap, but I don't think actually the spheres overlap. It's that we live in multiple different worlds. I'm a citizen. I'm a member of the church. I'm a Christian obligated before God to obey certain things. And we need to keep those distinct so that we don't just transfer people's burdens and passions over to the mandate of the church, right? Well, I heard years ago, I think it's a good way to say it. The church has a commission. It doesn't have causes, right? But that's what tends to be. People buy into a cause, and they go, hey, the church has got to do something about this. And all of a sudden, it motivates people, and now the church is existing to care for this problem or stamp out human trafficking. You know, I mean, there's the difference between the student volunteer movement, we're going to complete world evangelism in this generation, and the one-day conference, like, 
six years ago is we're going to stamp out human trafficking in this generation, right? Because it's the mission. So, so we need to do it. Same thing about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and the church are not the same thing. So to argue that the kingdom should include these things, therefore the church must do them, I think is just, again, a category error. And why most often when people begin to argue that way, they go to Matthew and they turn left. All right, I should go left for you guys, right? Because they go, they go to Old Testament prophets and the Mosaic law to say this is what we're supposed to be doing because this is what the kingdom's righteousness is like. Right, I'm just reading the book, and it says this is the thing, these are the things the righteousness of the kingdom is concerned about. And there's like a line and a half of verses, not one of which came from the New Testament. Right, so, so here's the basic problem. Old Testament Israel was a theocracy, a civil government under the rule of God. The United States is not. So if you're going to actually make an appropriate application, it would be, so those things should be found in the church, God's people. I wouldn't agree with you because I, I don't think we're under that law. But the corollary would be between Israel as God's people, the church as God's people. It wouldn't be between Israel as God's people and civil governments around the world. Right? So we don't have a responsibility to impose that kind of righteousness over people who've rejected our God. And, and yet the church is starting to turn in that direction, right? Our mission is to do these things. We need to do these things and accomplish these things. And it's going to be long-term bleed down from the centrality of the preaching of the cross for the calling out of sinners to trust in him, forming them into assemblies and multiplying those. Because, and I'll just end with this, it's simply dollar cost reality, right? If you go out to dinner at five o'clock and you go spend $5 at McDonald's, that's $5 you couldn't spend somewhere else. And when someone says we need to stop XYZ social issue and the church puts $5 over toward that, that's $5 that can't go to the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Right? That's just the way it works. So the way you have to solve that problem is say, well, they're both legitimate. They're both legitimate. And now say it's like, well, you know, you've got two sons. You've got to give 250 to him and 250 to him. That's what they're trying to do is this is actually the mission of the church. And I'm saying, no, that's not the mission of the church. That's not.